We're going to have an amazing discussion on Messianic prophecy today with my special guest, Dr. Michael Radelnik. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us today on The Line of Fire. It is Thoroughly Jewish Thursday, and we are going to focus on the Messiah and Messianic prophecy, not focusing on the impeachment, not focusing on everything swirling around that, but we are focusing on a preeminently important subject, the Messiah in the Hebrew Scriptures. Here's number to call with any question, Jewish-related of any kind, but in particular, related to the Messiah, related to Messianic prophecy, 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-348-7884. If you are listening and you are a Jewish person in particular and you don't believe Jesus is the Messiah according to the Hebrew Scriptures, or you think the New Testament mistranslates or misquotes verses or takes them out of context, by all means, call with your questions. Again, 866 348 Seven eight eight four. When I came to faith in 1971, December 17th marked a great transition point when I surrendered to the Lord by His grace and said I'd never put a needle in my arm again as a heavy drug user for a couple of years, radically saved in a little Italian Pentecostal church. It was not the Messianic prophecies that led me to faith. It was an encounter with God. It was the Holy Spirit working in my life, conviction of sin, and then encountering the love and goodness of God and transformation that took place out of that. I heard from my friends that there were some prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament. I I heard from my friends that were sharing the gospel with me, themselves brand new in the Lord, that there were some verses that clearly spoke about his suffering and things, but I didn't know where they were. I wasn't familiar with them. And then you start reading through the New Testament, you see references to these things, and okay, we have it here, we have it here, we have it here. And then I started to talk to rabbis, and the rabbis said, no, it's taken out of context, it's butchered or mistranslated, it's not reliable. So early on, I was challenged. I mean, very early on, before I could sort things out in the Hebrew, before I had other resources to go to, early on, confronted with this. And there were big questions, serious questions, hard questions. I talked to my pastor, and it was not his line. In other words, this was not an area of his strength. His strength was more in devotion to the Lord and meeting with the Lord in prayer and the Word and sharing the gospel with others and things like that. And then when I started college, I remember talking to folks from Jews for Jesus. And even though there were some scholars that they'd have access to, people like Rachmael Friedland that knew rabbinic literature well, their emphasis was evangelism, evangelism, evangelism. And their literature was meant to reach out, reach out, reach out. So when I came with my questions, I I didn't have a lot of people to go to. And then I I, I discovered Christian scholars and great learning and knowing Hebrew well and having a great understanding of the Old Testament and the New Testament, but they didn't have a sensitivity to Jewish objections. They didn't have a sensitivity to Jewish objections to Jesus. Because of that, the answers that they gave didn't really satisfy the questioner. 
In other words, if you're answering for a particular audience or looking through a particular lens and someone's coming from a very, very different perspective, it's very possible, excuse me, it's very possible that that you're just going to kind of pass each other like ships in the night. <coughs> excuse me. And then when I began to find others that were scholars and more sensitive to these issues, some weren't as conservative as I was, so they didn't take the text as literally. And so I, I had to literally, with uh, God's help and grace, pull myself up from my own bootstraps. In other words, I had to dig, I had to learn, I had to study, and ultimately wrote five volumes on answering Jewish objections to Jesus, which with the Lord's help have been a great blessing to many and set a certain standard. But there has not been a comprehensive book by conservative believers sensitive to Jewish objections and with solid learning of the Hebrew and rabbinic literature, one comprehensive volume that put everything together in terms of just Messianic prophecy. One of my five volumes, volume three, tackles objections to Messianic prophecy and we, ta- we spent a few hundred pages doing that, but there is so, so much more to be done. So I'm absolutely thrilled now that my colleague, Dr. Michael Rodelnik, together with Dr. Edwin Bloom, has put together a volume with dozens of top scholars called The Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecy. I'm, I'm holding it in my hands right now. It is in total, how many pages? Yeah, over 1,400 pages, amazing articles, great scholarship, very readable. I, I knew it was going to be important when Michael asked me to contribute it. When the final volume came out, it was far above my expectations. So if you have a question, Messianic prophecy related, related to the Messiah described in the Hebrew Scriptures, fulfillment in the New Testament, any questions like that would be specially appropriate today because— I bring on now to the air, at last, my good friend, Michael Rodelnik. Hey, man, thanks for joining us today. Hey, how are you, friends? It's good to talk with you. Yeah, (laughs) excuse me, great to talk with you. When did you get the idea of putting Uh, this together? How did this arise? Was this something in your heart for many, many years to do this handbook? you know, you, you interviewed me once about a book I wrote called The Messianic Hope. Yep. Is the Hebrew Bible really messianic. And it's in that book, I tried to make a case that uh, though many evangelical scholars were abandoning the idea of direct messianic prophecy, that uh, it needed to be reconsidered, and I tried to make a case for it. And I only gave one example in that book from the Law and the Prophets and the Writings uh, at the end of the book, after I made the case, just to say, hey, we could read these passages messianically. And at that time, I thought, what we really need is a book that's far more thorough, that goes through virtually every passage that you can think of messianically. Uh, And so as a result, it kind of was on my mind. I thought about it with various publishers. And then what happened was I was just finishing editing the Moody Bible Commentary, which is a one-volume commentary on the whole Bible by the faculty of Moody, and I mentioned to the publisher, and this is, I'd say, about six years ago, I said, you know, it would be really great if we did a handbook on Messianic prophecy uh, or a dictionary or something like that. 
and he jumped all over it. I thought, wow, that's surprising. I was waiting to make a sell, you know. <laughs> but that's, that's how it happened. And so when I finished the, uh, the commentary, when that was done, then we turned our, I turned my attention to try and put this together. So, so how long did this project take, and how many people were involved in terms of the major contributors? Uh, let's say that there were 40 contributors. Think that's 40 over five years uh, in the making. You know, the, the contracts were signed before, but I finished the commentary before I started work on this. And then about five years ago, I uh, started work on it. That's when I, if you remember, that's when I contacted you and asked you to write in it. And, uh, you know, then, of course, you know how it is, Michael, because some people just don't produce. You know, so we, we had some really great people sign up, and then they just never turned anything in. I couldn't get them to turn it in. <laughs> so then we had to go back, and I had to write some articles, and you had to write an article, I think, if I remember right. I added one for your, uh, and I had to go back and uh, and find some other people to write. And so it ended up taking a little bit longer than we had hoped. But uh, the actual process was from beginning to finish of recruiting and editing and writing and doing all that was about five years. Yeah, and, and really considering the scope of the project and as many people as being involved, that, that's really not a lot of no. time. Uh, I've, <laughs> I've been involved in projects that have been set back. You, you get everything in, finish the deadlines, and then it's five years before the stuff After gets that. out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, yeah. so uh, obviously, this is to the glory of the Lord. You don't have to yeah. worry about sounding proud in this because we know that the idea is from the Lord. But what is unique about this? What makes this really a landmark volume in terms of biblical scholarship and the whole study of Messianic prophecy, kind of a first of its kind? Well, you know, when we think about it, there, there have been major works in the past. Uh, in fact, there's a chapter in here kind of like going over all the different big works. You know, we think of Hankstenberg, Ernst Hankstenberg's multi-volume Christology of the Old Testament, and mm-hmm. most of those are dated. It doesn't really deal with contemporary scholarship or literary analysis. Uh, and so we wanted something that would, would stand the test of time, that would be a resource for people for years to come uh, who want to see what the Bible says about Messiah and the Hebrew Bible. And so uh, that's, I think, what made it unique. We, we have really... How, how, how do I put this? We, we have top-notch scholars writing in this, but they all affirm strongly the authority, the inspiration of the Word of God. And, uh, you know, so often it's thought, you, what, what, what are you going to do when you have people write? You have to get scholars, you have to get believers. <laughs> yeah, either or, instead of both and. Yeah. This is both and, and uh, they, they're, it's really compelling, I think, and it'll be a resource. I think that's what I wanted it to be. Is a, uh, and I agree with you. This is, the Lord put it on my heart. There's no doubt about it. Uh, more, he even put it on my wife's heart, so she was the one kind of whispering in my ear about this. And uh, I kept saying, yeah, and, and that resonated with me, and it, it, I really do believe this will be a resource for many, many years, for a generation. Yeah, uh, there's no reason not to, and it's it's not like there are things that are dated that, well, it's just going with the latest scholarly trend, and, and those change like fashion changes. 
this, exactly. this is it's, it's it's reading the scriptures as as you did you know what, what do the scriptures actually say and how do we understand them i you're i have to say uh the work you did i believe on zechariah 6 it was uh i thought it was just exceptional uh tough passage you really worked through it well i was i was just so pleased uh that of course you wrote on rabbinic literature and Isaiah 53. You gave me the, the honor 53. of doing yeah, Isaiah that, 53. Yeah, what, what a blessing! What a blessing! TV show about that one. You know, we did, we did, and and, and you know, uh, I'm just going to jump in. We we got a break, but the the neat thing is, for Michael and I, we've been in constant interaction with the Jewish community and rabbis and others for years and years. So that that sharpens your arguments. All right, we're going to take calls 866 348 7884. I, I want to get some perspective about. The Messiah in the Psalms from Michael, and was there intentional editing of the Psalms to point to him? We'll be right back. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Yes, sometimes I forget that Jewish music is coming on Thoroughly Jewish Thursday on the Line of Fire. Michael Brown, so blessed to be with you, holding in my hands the Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecy, co-edited by Michael Radelnik, who's Professor of Jewish Studies and Bible at Moody Bible Institute, and Professor Edward Blum. Uh, Michael, you and another colleague, Seth Postel, were greatly influenced by the scholarship of John Salehammer, and he and others have looked at the Book of Psalms not just specific verses, but mm-hmm. the structuring of psalms. Seth has an article on that. Uh, you've, you've looked at that as well. Can, can you explain this to our listeners in terms sure. of the evidence that, that the book of psalms is structured in such a way as to point to the Messiah? Yeah, you know, a couple books, just so you know, that uh, it's not just Salehammer, who's with the Lord, now one of my, my favorite doctoral professors, the, the, the book's uh, dedicated to Dr. Stathammer. Uh But uh, a British scholar by the name of David C. Mitchell has written a book called The Message of the Psalter, mm-hmm. uh, a remarkable book. And also uh, John uh, Bruce Walkey, one of the, a name everyone should know, one of the great Old Testament scholars ever, wrote a, a, a chapter in a book honoring Charles Feinberg called A Canonical Process Approach to the Psalms, and it sounds impressive, but uh, those two works influenced me as much as John and influenced Seth as well. Here's the idea, that the the Book of Psalms should not be written like the old songbooks we used to put together in the Jesus movement when we wrote a new song every week and went to Bible study and attached it to the back of the loose leaf, you know? Uh, That's how often we think of the Psalms, that they just kind of got stuck in there one after the other. But there is really a plan and a process in putting it, and also that this was done after the exile. David certainly wrote his psalms in his lifetime, but the, the, the book was put together after the exile. The reason we know that is there's exilic psalms, like Psalm 137, you know, uh, by the waters of Babylon, there we lay down and wept. Psalm 126, when the Lord brought back the captive ones to Zion, that's after the exile. So, as a result... Uh, we have to see it as a book put together after 
the exile with a plan and a purpose where there's words and themes that link one psalm to the other. So there's actually a flow of thought in the psalms. Uh, and this is that, that, that is the most up-to-date approach to the book of Psalms right now in terms of scholarship. Uh, what's so significant about that is there's this character through the Psalms that keeps being honored. He's the king. Mm-hmm. And of course, there was no Davidic king after the exile. They were looking forward to the coming of the son of David, the messianic king in the future. And so, as a result, when this book was put together, when they're singing these songs in honor of the king, they're looking for the messianic king. And I think that's why Dietrich Bonhoeffer called the book of Psalms the, the songbook or the prayer book of the Messiah. So, so in other words, a psalm that may originally have been talking about King David and prayer for the king or the exaltation of the king or, or David praying for Solomon in, in Psalm 72 that now that this is part of the literature of Israel and it's being recited and prayed and they're in exile or it's after exile and there's no Davidic king and there's no Davidic throne and they're speaking of the king, are they just looking back to the good old days or are they looking forward to the coming of the greater king? I I think it's talking about the coming of the greater king. And I would even go further that David anticipated that he was writing about a future king and I wrote a chapter in this book, in Second Samuel 23, about Second Samuel 23. And in Second Samuel 23, uh, there's a variant reading. You know, I'm sure your listeners do, too, because they're all Hebrew scholars, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, that that the, uh, the Hebrew Bible didn't have any vowels when it was written. The yeah. vowels were added between 800 to 1000 A.D. So... Very, very recent, relatively speaking. And in Second Samuel 23, there's a word there. Uh, it's a simple word. It's al. And it either means high or it means concerning, depending on the vowel that was put in. Well, the Septuagint read it with a different vowel, the Greek translation of the 2nd century B.C., uh, than the Masoretic text reads it with. And so I'm going to read this to you uh, from Second Samuel uh, I'm sorry, Second uh, Samuel 23, where David is writing his last words. These, this is the recording of his last words, and this is what he says. Uh, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle, this uh, Neum means a prophetic oracle, the oracle of the man raised, not on high, but the man raised up concerning the one anointed or the anointed one of the God of Jacob, the delightful one of the songs of Israel. In other Mm. words, David says, I am writing concerning the anointed one. And then, of course, the next word, next question you would ask is, David, how could you possibly know about the anointed one? And he says that the Spirit of the Lord spoke through me, and his word was on my tongue. And then he describes what he told him about one who rules the people with justice, who rules in the fear of God, and then, in verse 5, uh, there's no, there really is no question, though some English versions have a question there. It really says, uh, For not so, Kilo came, for not so is my house with God. I'm not that righteous king, but I know he's coming. The Lord will raise him up. He has not raised him up yet, but he will be raised up. And the word uh, raised up, or spring up, 
It's the same word that's used for branch in uh, in Jeremiah 23. It's in the verbal form. But So David is saying here in his last words, who are you writing about, David? Writing about the Messiah. How can you write about him? Well, he's, uh, I was a prophet. And then he says, I know he's coming, too, because uh, he made an oath to me. He swore a covenant to me that he would give me a greater son. So it's, then, it's a great passage. And David would, is saying, I'm writing about the Messiah. This would then be in keeping with what what Jesus says regarding Psalm 110 and what Peter says regarding Psalm 16, that David exactly. foresaw the Messiah and spoke about him. So you would just say, yeah. yeah, that's literally what happened. Exactly. And in fact, I would even go further. I believe that Peter was taught Messianic prophecy by the Lord Jesus himself. He was his Messianic prophecy professor. And uh, we see that in Luke 24. And he's using Second Samuel 23 to guide his interpretation of uh, Psalm 16. He says the very same thing. David wasn't writing about himself. He was writing about the Messiah, just like David says. And then he says uh, that uh, he was a prophet, just like David says. His word was on my tongue. And then the, the third thing he says is that he knew that there was a covenant made to him uh, about the Messiah, uh, the son of David, the Davidic covenant. So he, he mentions the same things that David mentions right there in Second Samuel 23. I think that Peter was using Second Samuel 23 as his background. Do, do you think that when, when Hannah gives praise to God in First Samuel 2, so this is before you have Saul as the king, it's obviously before you have David as a king, and she mm-hmm. says uh, that he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed, would that indicate to you that there was a hope like this in, in ancient Israel? Yes, I do think that that was the case. And it goes all the way back to the Pentateuch, where a king was promised in Genesis 49, uh, the, the one to whom it belongs. And in Numbers 24, the king, the star that will rise uh, out of Jacob. And so there was always, in a, 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 going back to the Torah, there was an anticipation that the king would come. So yes, I think that, that Hannah was thinking that. There's a wonderful article in it by, done by a professor at Moody Bible Institute, James Coakley, on uh, 2 Samuel 1. Right, so friends, this is this is all in the Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecy, Studies and Expositions of the Messiah in the Old Testament. Uh, I have it in my hand. I have it at home. I've just sent a volume to, to one of my colleagues of telling some counter-missionary friend about the importance of, of getting the book. In fact, I offered to send him a copy. Uh, it's, it's that important. We are not selling it through our ministry, but wherever you get your books, christianbook.com or Amazon, get a copy. And then if you're blessed by it, post a review on Amazon. That's the most traveled site in terms of people looking and finding out. Post a review, let others know about it. It's, it's an amazing resource. All right, we're, we're going to take some calls. Uh, Jonathan, Mississippi, you're going to be up first, but don't want to do so right before the break. Uh, really quickly, we've just got a, a minute other articles that really got your attention that you learned something you're, or, or, or you found something new or exciting when you're reading them? Any others that, that come to your mind? Well, you mentioned Seth Postel about the song, but he wrote one called The Old Testament in the Old Testament. Mm. <laughs> and I love that article uh, because what he writes there is that the Hebrew Bible itself is having a conversation and that the later prophets are reading the earlier prophets, and the later prophets are confirming 
that the earlier prophets were reading the Bible, uh, were writing messianically, and they're reading it messianically. I think that's a wonderful chapter, the Old Testament, the Old Testament. My friend Larry Feldman, whom you know, he, he recently read that one. He said, that's one of the best articles I've ever read. Yeah, there there really are amazing insights. And, you know, scholars like Michael Fishbane talk about what's called intertextuality. So looking back to see where a later writer is quoting an earlier, making an allusion. My commentary on the the book of Job, I get into that a lot, where the book of Job is making subtle allusions to other parts of the Bible without quoting them directly. It's pointing in that direction. So it's, it's really a treasure to open up the Word of God is an amazing treasure. And this book, the Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecy, will help you dig into the treasure of the Word. All right, we're going to the calls, to the phones, as soon as we come back. My special guest, Professor Michael Rydelnik from Moody Bible Institute. Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome to our Thoroughly Jewish Thursday broadcast with my special guest, Michael Radelnik. Dear friend, we don't get to hang out that much, but when we do, it's always rich professor of Jewish Studies and Bible at Moody Bible Institute, but most importantly today, editor, one of the co-editors of the Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecy, over 1,400 pages, a landmark work. It's my privilege that I got to contribute to it as well. All right, let's, uh, let's grab some calls. You do your own talk show on, on, uh, on Moody Radio, so I'll, I'll let you answer some questions. Uh, Jonathan, okay. Mississippi, you are up first. Hello, Dr. Brown. How are you doing today? Oh, just great. Thank you. My question is for your guest. Uh, when witnessing to uh, Jewish people, is it effective to uh, use like Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 to prove that Yeshua is Hamashiach? Absolutely. Uh, I think the problem is that too many people today would argue that those passages are not messianic. And one of the reasons why I'm so grateful to have this resource available is that if someone were to say to you, oh no, that's not messianic at all, Psalm 22 is David talking about his own suffering, Uh, this uh, book will help you understand those passages better and make the case right from the Psalms, for example, that he is talking about the Messiah. So, uh, indeed, I think those are, are terrific passages to use, and there's so many as well, so many others. And so, so thank me, you, me, sir. Yeah, uh, thank you, Jonathan, for the question. So, Michael, let me pres- pursue something with you about mm-hmm. Isaiah 53. Uh, mm-hmm. In your mind, was there an original context for the prophet? Was there anything he was looking at in terms of vicarious suffering, substitutionary suffering, a righteous person suffering, bringing healing to others? Was it pure revelation of the coming of the Messiah? Was there any pattern he was looking at? What's your understanding? Well, I think that that he has kind of three servants in view in the second half of the book of Isaiah. Uh, And one servant is a failed servant, Israel. 
Israel is called the servant several times, but always in the context of this servant has not succeeded in all I've called him to be. He has not been uh, a light to the Gentiles, this servant Israel. And then the second servant is one that God would use to bring the people back from captivity. Uh, and there's a prediction in there, several, of King Cyrus, even mentioning him by name in Isaiah 45. Uh, King Cyrus is sort of a political servant. But then there's this sort of mysterious character in the four servant songs uh, who is not just going to bring political deliverance, but he will bring spiritual deliverance. He will succeed where Israel failed. Uh, He will be not just the glory of his people Israel, but he'll be a light to the nations. And so this one is depicted in the four servant songs, and that's what he had in mind to give sort of an anticipation. Israel, no, you haven't cut it. Temporarily, in, in, in time, I'm going to use Cyrus now to bring about political restoration. But there's going to be a future son of David, a king, coming from the line of David, who will be that suffering servant, who will provide not just uh, royalty and kingship, but also spiritual deliverance. And I think that's what was in his mind, uh, prophetically, to give hope to Israel of, a, of redemption. Well, there's, By the way, you mentioned great articles. There's a great article in Isaiah about Isaiah 55, and it was written by Bob Chisholm, who's the chairman of Old Testament at Dallas Theological Seminary. Yep. And what he does is he shows how Isaiah 55, 3-5, through 5, is designed to show the fulfillment of the Davidic promise in in the servant. And so this is a, a great capstone article for the four servant song uh, from Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49. We have an article on that, Isaiah 50. And then, of course, you did the one on Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. But then to cap it all off, this article shows how that was indeed what Isaiah was looking forward to. Yeah, the sure, the sure mercies of David. Where does that come in? It's kind of out of the blue, talking about David again. So Dr. Yeah. Chisholm says, no, no, not out of the blue at all. It, it, exactly. It's exactly on the heels of these previous scriptures. And, and by the way, friends, everything's laid out for going right through the Bible. In, in other words, you start in Genesis, and you're going right through, and then the order of the Psalms and Isaiah. So it, in that sense, even though every article is standalone— that when you, when you get into it, if you're just going through like, hey, I, I just want to do a study and, and read the whole book through, you can do that. But I have to say, as I've been flipping through articles, I've been thrilled because for so many years, I've, I've you know, dig in and go back and forth with rabbis and counter missionaries and you know, brilliant arguments and challenges and responding there and looking at rabbinic literature and looking at the Hebrew Bible and, and all of that. And then to kind of step back and get some other perspectives from people coming from different angles has, has been refreshing uh, for me as, as well and inspirational. <laughs> Excuse me. I'm, let's, I'm glad. Uh, Listen, Mike, yeah. Mike, if you only know how much it means to me that you like this book, I can't, I can't tell you. That was my great uh, tension. You know, I'm like, well, what will my friends like Mike Brown, who I really want to like this book, what will they think? And so I am, I am really, really grateful that you like it. And I, I really do think it, it's a good resource, not just for scholars like you, but anyone who really is knowledgeable, wants to know the Word of God, I think they can, they can uh, dig in and say, okay, I'm going to be stretched, but I will learn. And I, yep. that's what I'm really 
really. Yeah, and and those that want to go deeper, you have the the end notes to do it. So if you want to dig deeper, here are the sources. Here here's what we got into, but really available for others. And and the if you're if you're listening and thinking, well, why would there be any tension and understanding between two Messianic Jews who are both into Scripture and believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Well, we know that the Messiah was in the mind of God from before the creation of the world, and mm-hmm. that Yeshua was a lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. So we know that, we agree on that. The question is, how much was revealed to biblical authors? How much did they know? How much was it in their yeah. minds? And that's, that's the thing where you can really look at it from different angles and really try to understand that. And, and I think the argument that, that this was known to biblical authors even earlier than many would think, earlier than many critical, critical scholars would think, sometimes earlier than I might think, I think the argument is presented wonderfully well. And certainly that was always God's intent. You know yeah. that God was always doing this. All right, let me, uh, yeah. let me grab another call here. Uh, Courtney from Alabama, welcome to the line of fire. Hey, guys, and thank you for taking my call. Um, I wanted to quickly ask, what is the main difference between, let's say, this book and other Messianic prophecy books out there? Because um, I tuned in late, and I'm very interested in this book, because I like to dig deeper into the Scriptures. Which other ones do you have in mind? Have you looked at any others? Are you familiar with any others? I do, yeah. So I just moved into a small apartment, so I don't have my uh, library with me, but uh, the one for Israel they just released, uh, I want to say about a year ago, I have that one, which a lot of those I kind of already knew about. So I'm looking for things that I might have missed, uh, might not have known about. Uh, I think uh, the second Samuel reference was one that I didn't know about, so that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Things like that. Yeah, I think that I would say that there are some really wonderful resources out there, and I don't want to minimize them. I think, uh, I, obviously, I did my doctoral research on Messianic prophecy. I've written another book on Messianic prophecy. It, it's sort of the, the most important subject to me. Uh, I came to faith through it. Uh, now, that said, uh, I think that this book tries to be a little bit more comprehensive than other books that are out there, in the sense of trying to get as much as we can uh, about it, so that, as you say, you didn't know about Second Samuel 23. I venture to say you don't know about Joel 2.23, uh, which is a, another passage that I got to write on. Uh, and uh, no, I don't know of hardly any other books that writes about Joel 2.23 as in, the mess- in Messianic text. So it's more comprehensive, and also... We do have those endnotes to support the—you I mean, don't need them, but, uh, you know, people want to know, where are you basing this on? Where are you getting it from? Uh, There's—I I was really determined to have endnotes so that people could go and, and dig deeper if they wanted to. And uh, so I would say that—and I'd say this is not a book that proof texts. We're trying to read the text of Scripture in context uh, as—, as uh, as the author would have intended us to read it. Yeah, and, and oh, well, yeah, just I... a, yeah, just a few other thoughts for you, Courtney. If you go back to the old volume that Michael mentioned earlier in the show, E.W. Hengstenberg, uh, Christology of the Old Testament, two volumes, brilliant, but also reflecting scholarship in the 1800s and not always sensitive to Jewish objections to Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, Walter Kaiser has a great book on Messiah in the Old Testament, but it's it's shorter, doesn't get to go into his great depth. 
Herbert Lockyer had a book out, All the Messianic Prophecies of the Bible, which was more of a, of a list and compilation. My volume, In Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus, Volume 3, answers objections to the various Messianic prophecies, but doesn't lay out the comprehensive case for all of them. And then my volume is about 300 pages, similar to that, the Eitan Bar volume that you mentioned, One for Israel, about refuting rabbinic objections to Christianity and Messianic prophecy, about 300 pages, but answering objections, responding to the objections, whereas this is 1,440-plus pages going through every possible Messianic reference in the whole of the Bible, but then in a real solid way. It's if, if, if for example, Joel 2.23, and you may read it and think, what's Messianic about that? When you get into Michael's article, you'll be forced to think. In other words, it's not one of these just pull a passage out, cite it, and throw it out into the wind. Each one is going to give you a solid scriptural argument. So, yes, there is responding to some of the objections as well. Of course, we do that. That's inherent in in answering questions that we know people are going to ask. But there's so much in-depth exposition that it really is a treasure. So, Courtney, I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Again, Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecy. And Michael, uh, go ahead. I want to jump in. I'm so grateful that that Walt Kaiser contributed an article on the Davidic Covenant, because he's such a great scholar, and uh, also wrote the foreword. Yep, that says Uh, a lot. I'm so thrilled that he did that. I'm really grateful. Yes, so so you you got top people writing in it. All right, we've just got a few minutes left, one more segment with... Mike Rodelnik, so we'll see if we can get to another call or two. And we had joked one time that I'd come to Moody and dress up like a rabbi and debate him as to why Jesus wasn't the Messiah. And then we'd switch. He'd put the garb on, and I'd take the other side. I mean, we've lived in this. We've lived in this. And, boy, the Word is amazingly rich and deep and beautiful. That's why Yeshua opened the disciples' minds. And, wow, there it is. There he is, all through the Scriptures. We'll be right back. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on The Line of Fire. Michael Brown with my special guest, Dr. Michael Rydelnik, professor at Moody Bible Institute, co-editor of the Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecy. Michael, when you mentioned the excellent article by James Coakley on 1 Samuel 2 and the song of, of Hannah, I just was flipping through the pages now in the book and I, I think saw... I think I 2 Samuel 1, but I, I flipped my numbers. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, you did. You did. That was my subtle, polite way of of correcting it. But trust me, I've, I've done that uh, after the show. It's like, did I say? Oh no, I can't yeah. believe I said that. Anyway, yeah, uh, we we all do it. So, uh, in in uh, on page three sixty seven, there is a chart that says lexical similarity between First Samuel two and and Second Samuel twenty two. So the Psalm of of Hannah and the Psalm of David. Uh, and it's it's really quite remarkable. And this would be one of these areas of, of intertextuality where you can't deny either by divine intent, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, or that the author was, was conscious of this as well, that similar vocabulary is used, similar words are used, and, and you can't deny that it's the same subject that's in focus. 
Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I think too often we think that there was like a transcriber going there when uh, Hannah wrote her psalm. <laughs> right. Uh, but really what you have is the author, and we don't know who it was, of First and Second Samuel, who was deliberately framing the words so that we would notice this interbiblical interpretation, this interbiblical uh, interaction between First Samuel 2 and Second Samuel 22. Uh, it is it's deliberate uh, by the author so that we would pick it up. I remember when I was writing my Jeremiah commentary, and I came across a verse in Jeremiah 21, a prophetic interaction between Jeremiah and Zedekiah, and three different words for wrath were all used in the same verb, in, in the same sentence. And I yeah. thought, boy, that's, that's striking. It got my attention. So I, uh-huh. I immediately looked it up and found that those three words only occurred in the same verse one other time, and it was in Deuteronomy. And when you went back to Deuteronomy, then you said, ah, oh, this is the point. This is the, yeah. the connection. And, and God, again, in his wisdom, has inspired things, not in some secret codes, but in, in words and, that are clear, that are indisputable. But sometimes you have to dig a little bit yeah. uh, to find them. Or, you know, I always say, I, I teach biblical interpretation at Moody. And I always teach them, Rydelnik's first rule of biblical interpretation, in order to understand the Bible, we need to read the Bible. Uh-huh. And, and, you know, one of the things that happens as we're reading, if we're consistently reading, we're going to pick up on these intertextual allusions. We're going to—but it requires reading it. It doesn't, it doesn't just happen. Yeah, you know, that I, I was asked while speaking in Silicon Valley a Sunday night this past week— about which translation of the Bible is best to use. So I went through all the strengths and weaknesses, from my perspective, of the many different translations that are available. And thank God for the abundance. I said, but you know the old saying, the best translation is the one you're going to read. And, yeah, right. And, uh, <laughs> all right, listen, it looks like we've got a former student of yours, uh, Rochelle, uh, in, now in Raleigh, North Carolina. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hi, hey, Rochelle. how are you guys doing? Hi, Michael. Thanks. Good to hear your voice on the radio. Thanks. Just want just want to call in and say that um, I first of all would love to see Dr. Brown dressed as a rabbi, studying the scriptures, and I think that'd be a super powerful way to help people understand that it's not as simple. You know, I, I go to church and I'm in Bible study, and people just constantly kind of shake their head. Why don't the Jewish people see it? Why don't they see yeah. it? It's so obvious. And so yeah. people are in church all the time, and to them, it's just they get to see it backwards. And so I just think that you guys are awesome. And I was one of the sacrificial men that Michael students. I didn't get him as much because he was working on this handbook. And the handbook's incredible. And I just wanted to publicly say it on the radio. Here's oh, great. Thank you. So you were in that Messianic time. Prophecy class. And so I appreciate I you enduring the, uh, the lessons so that it could get the book form, right? Yes. And you're just so excited watching you build it and just seeing the other professors being a part of it. Definitely yeah. a sacrifice of love. Thank you. Awesome. Hey, thanks yeah. for the call, Rochelle. You know, it reminds me, I was about to do a seminar on answering Jewish objections to Jesus at a big Messianic congregation in Dallas, Texas. And before I started, and we, people were there, it was well attended. I said, let me show you that you need this class. I said, all right, who's your number one person here? Your sharpest, your best bring. Uh, so they put out oh, so-and-so, he's really good. I said, all right, come on up here. I'll be, I'll be the rabbi. <laughs> 
and within minutes I had demolished, you know, the different views and positions and and so on. Of course, there. look, we wouldn't be believers following the Lord all these many decades if we weren't following the truth, if there weren't solid objections. But I remember talking to a a well-educated lawyer who actually did apologetics and was on the front lines of the Mm -hmm. culture wars. And we were sitting down over dinner, and he said, well, what possible objection could a Jew have to Jesus? <laughs> I, thought it's, I thought it's wonderful that he has such strong faith, but amazing that he's so unaware of that. But, Rochelle, thank you for the call. Yeah, hey, you know, thank you, guys. Thank you, Rochelle. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, in my first book on Messianic prophecy, on the Messianic hope, I ended with a story. It's a true story. I was in high school. And we had a, someone who's kind of famous now, I won't mention his name, uh, <laughs> come, and he, he actually gave a lecture on why Jews should not believe in Jesus at the Hebrew club, and there was no one to answer, and so I stood up at the end during question time, and I thought, well, I'll just answer him. And everything, I, I went, I started with Genesis 3.15, and uh, he explained to me, it's just about humanity and snakes and we want to stomp them in the head, and they want to bite us on the heel. And We went through the—I mean, I just gave everything I could, and he demolished everything I said. And I thought, God will never use me again. Uh, he will mm. never let me speak for him again, because, you know, uh, I just failed. But it is what drove me to want to study Messianic prophecy in a deeper way, so I could answer those objections. And uh, that's why it became such a focus of my research for years and years and years. But the good news was many, many years later, I was giving a seminar in California, and I ran into one of my old high school teachers. And he didn't even know it was me, but he remembered that incident. That is what drove him to get a Bible and read the Bible for himself, and he came to faith in Yeshua. So you just never know. Even our worst failures, yeah, <laughs> God, God can use that. Yeah, and look, when I came to faith and then— uh, the little Hebrew I knew from my bar mitzvah, you had a, a bit more religious upbringing than I did, much more really. So I, I just barely even remembered the Hebrew at that point, just even the letters. Uh, yeah. So I, I came to faith the, uh, different than you. You came on a journey through Messianic prophecy. I only learned about the prophecies after I was a believer, but immediately challenged by the rabbis. And here I'm memorizing 20 verses a day, and I'm mowing mm-hmm. down everybody except the rabbis. You know, I just can yeah. answer every objection. I remember one rabbi said to me, if, if, I, I said, I'll learn Hebrew later. In the meantime, I'm using Strong's Concordance, the dictionary in the back. And I remember he said, meantime, shemean time. If you don't know Hebrew, it doesn't mean anything. And then he brought me to meet ultra-Orthodox Jews in Brooklyn. And that's what really threw me. I was 18 years old. I'd been through the Bible probably cover to cover five times, memorized maybe 4,000 verses, praying hours every day. And I meet these guys, and they're studying and praying hours a day. And they know all this by heart, and they seem very nice and very mm-hmm. devoted, different than the, the Jewish men in my synagogue where I grew up. Is they were very nominal. And everything I threw at them, they had an answer. Sure. And I remember saying, God, I, I want the truth. I want to be a loyal Jew and honor you wherever the truth leads. In other words, I was not going to study to prove I was right. I was going to study to please God wherever the truth led. And here, these decades later, uh, the truth keeps opening up to us in wonderful ways. And two minutes before the break, Michael, in your own journey— were you determined to prove your faith right at any cost, or were you determined to go with the witness of the Scriptures? Well, I, I think I came to faith through the witness of the Scriptures. I mm-hmm. was convinced of the truth of it. Even as I stood there 
responding to that guy when I was just in high school. I was probably 16 years old yep. uh, when I was in that interaction. I knew I, I had the truth. Uh, I didn't have to prove it to myself. I just needed to articulate it better. I needed to understand his arguments better, and I needed to articulate it. I was going to follow God wherever he led, but I was convinced that the simple reading of the text that I had done made sense, uh, but I needed to get deeper uh, so I could make a a better case so people could see it. I really believe that. Uh, But I, I just wanted to follow what the Scriptures say, and that's what caused me to believe in Yeshua in the first place. Uh, to be a good Jew, I thought I have to believe all that the prophets foretold, and, and they foretold the Messiah, Jesus. So, yeah, I think I just wanted not to confirm it to myself, but to be able to better articulate it for others. Uh, that's why I made it such an a in-depth study. Uh, I guess we don't have much time, but I, I remember one of the things that it takes the Spirit of God to open people's eyes and ears to see. I really believe that. I remember once talking to a rabbi, and I answered all his objections. And uh, his wife looked at me and said, you know, you're problematic. And I said, why is that? She says, because you know better. You actually know something. So <laughs> she didn't want to hear anything I had to say. The, the proof, though, is uh, when God opens our hearts to it. Like it says in Luke 24, Jesus opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And, and that's that's what we're hoping for and looking for. Yeah, so we, we present the truth as best as we can, and then we pray for our friends and the Jewish community, rabbis, other mm-hmm. secular Jews, religious Jews, that God would open their hearts, their minds. So friends, I, I heartily, strongly recommend you get a copy of the Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecy. Michael, can't wait to see you again. Keep up the awesome Looking work. Looking forward to it. All right, okay. thanks. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks for having me. All right. 